This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Police in Manchester have arrested uh, more people in connection to Monday night's bombing at the Ariana Grande concert. Police believe that the suspect did not act alone. Britain has raised uh, their threat level uh, as far as terrorism to critical. Uh, British soldiers also been deployed in uh, key areas, key sites to help uh, police with security and such. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, uh, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He's with us now. Ross, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Lots going on in this story. It certainly is fast moving. Uh, it really is, and uh, obviously the UK is trying to control that message. Uh, have you heard any rumors that they're upset with the United States for leaking out information before they've released information? Well, no, I, I don't think they'll be upset. This is a collaborative effort that's fighting this war on terror. And as you brought up, they're going to have that NATO meeting coming up, which is supposed to be redirecting itself towards terror. Uh, they're going to need the U.S. intelligence's help in doing all of this. Uh, but I do want to point something out here that's, that I think is very important. You know, as I've always talked to you, Scott, there's no such thing as a lone wolf in these issues. Hmm. They are calling this a terror network that they're closing in on. They have raised their terror threat level to critical, which is the highest level. And let me just point out something very special about that. You only go to that level if you believe that there is an attack imminent. So what I believe has happened since this took place, either through the intelligence services or through the raid on this guy's uh, home and the other homes, or through talking to his brother or one of the other three losers, I mean uh, terrorists who were arrested, Somebody's talked, and they know that there's been uh, more plans for more attacks to go on. Otherwise, they could not use the term imminent. So that's why we're seeing such a, a lift here in the activity. What do we know about the other four arrested? We, the, the, the story is one of them is the brother of, uh, of the bomber, who, although it's an anecdotal story, was said to be smiling and laughing as he was arrested and taken away. I don't know that we know much more about uh, the other couple right now. But what we are finding is that there's apparently the story, as we've talked about before, or is coming out now, that there was apparently travel to Libya, and very likely that's a cover for going into Syria by this bomber. So the real question for me now is, is, is there a bomber on the loose? Because somehow, Scott, not only have the terrorists made their way across from Syria to Europe to France, across the channel into the UK, but now bomb-making skills and bomb-making people have made their way across the channel. And that greatly raises the stakes if these bombs are going to become commonplace. Uh, what do we know about the actual bomber himself? Uh, born and raised there, understand. Is that correct? Yeah, born and raised. And let me clear up another thing about it. I hear some uh, some in the media saying, oh, so this is homegrown terror. It's not really ISIL. It's not this. That, that, that's just a lot of uh, hooey, if I, can, if I can say that plainly. A majority of these terrorists that have struck uh, in Europe and over in the U.S. are first-generation children of immigrants who have come from these countries. They've come here, they've, uh, they have their parents, whether their parents are involved in continuing to radicalize them or keep them separate uh, with their culture or doing the issues. They're not adjusting and uh, melding in socially to the new countries that they come into, and they become easy targets to become radicalized. So, in fact... He fits the exact picture of what we've seen for Islamist terror that's been going on in other countries. Uh, talk about that for a second, Ross, because uh, obviously that does stand out when people say that the person is, you know, born and raised there. What is the difference between homegrown terror and that aff affiliated with ISIS? Yeah, the, the, my, my definition of homegrown terror would be someone committing terror on a homegrown issue, on something to do with their country and their issue. Uh, you look at somebody like uh, Waco, where they're against the government or the FBI or something like that. That's homegrown terror. This is not uh, terror that's motivated by something going on in Britain. This is terror that's motivated out of the, uh, the ISIS caliphate ideology. Uh, we hear that when events like this happen, that often they are planned in groups, i.e. when they're constructing, you know, suicide vests or belts or, or whatever it is that they're, they're constructing, that they do it in groups. Uh, obviously, they are concerned about another attack. Yeah, well, certainly they're, they're, they're actually calling it a terror network right now. That's what they're calling it. They're not saying uh, accomplices. The, the police are using the words terror network, which, as I say, implies to me 
look at this guy was a 22 year old uh, numpty who, who for some reason thinks that it's a courageous thing to do to bomb and blow up children. So I'll tell you right off the bat, his, his intelligence and judgment level are not going to be high. So I suspect that there's going to be some mistakes that he has made and some trails that are being going to be available to uh, the police and law enforcement dealing with issues from his phones to his uh, Internet, uh, social media, and all of those things that they've been able to follow. Uh, this led them to uncover these uh, other four people arrested as well as raise the terror threat level. Talk a little bit about uh, the target, the fact that uh, these were young teens, even preteens. Uh, how does that change this discussion? Yeah, well, it's an extension. It's an absolute extension and raising of, of the, uh, the game of poker here. Uh, ISIL targeted France specifically because France was the antithesis of what their idea of how an Islamic state should be run. There shouldn't be pretty girls. There shouldn't be rock and roll. There shouldn't be drinking. There shouldn't be celebrating of that. There shouldn't be people dressing in certain ways. So that's why the attacks took place on uh, Paris, which, of course, is the nightlife of, of Europe for doing that. This is an extension of the same thing. I mean, Ariana Grande was picked on because she's uh, an American superstar. She's a girl. She and her fans, they all portray the things that they're very much against and that they think should be eradicated uh, from the face of the earth. That's why that was a target that was taken. And specifically for children to be taken, that was a planned, planned idea. They want to raise the stakes and show that there's nothing that they won't do. Do we view this attack differently because of the venue? Well, let me tell you what strategically and tactically I think is the problem that's come here. We have seen as uh, these terrorists, they, they raise their game, they learn from their previous attacks, and they incorporate tactics that work, and they disregard ones that don't. We saw in this attack that much like the Boston bombing, the decision was to do it at the end of the event rather than the start, because the start is too tight. We also see that what they decided to do, like they've done in, uh, in Paris and in Brussels, where they attack the perimeter because they can't get inside. They can't defeat the security, so they're content with blowing up at the perimeter. Now, the problem is, as I've discussed uh, with you for a long time, as you know, Scott, I don't believe that this is a police action and criminal acts. I believe that these are acts of war. And the problem for security is, if you're protecting yourself under the criminal code property right laws that you have in Canada, in the U.S., or even in the U.K., you can only protect your property. You can't act as security and go investigate and arrest people that are off your property. So you can only do what you can do at your perimeter. If you're going to protect your perimeter, you need the other people who are in charge of that, in this case, the, the subway people to look after protecting that, or the police who've got the ability to be out there and arrest and preempt and do this. But even for the police, you need properly trained counterterrorism police to manage this. So the issue is that even if you put the best security on as a concert promoter, you can't really protect outside the perimeter. You're going to need the assistance of the military, which I talked about that. And now, as we see, the military have been called in to protect certain venues at this point. Uh, we, we've talked many times before in, in, you know, about soft targets. You, you just made reference to how uh, security for these events are very tight going in, probably more lax so going out. You could see lots of people uh, leaving a, a facility like this where people could perhaps get back in or even just congregate in those areas as, as happened here. Can we win this fragmented war on terror where... You know, I mean, virtually anyone with a vehicle or, or, or even as organized as these, people's can, these people can make such an impact. Can we, can we get ahead of this? Well, you can if the government will take the proper steps, call it for what it is, declare it as a law, uh, allow the military and the police to work together in the correct way and take preemptive strikes. Like the other thing, we've talked about this again and again. This guy was known to police and intelligence services. They knew about him. They know about uh, of at least 400 other people who've gone off from the, the U.K. to go to uh, Syria and fight and have returned. They know about them, Scott, but there's no arresting of them going on. They're allowed to sit out there, fester, make their plans, where they're quite happy to die as they carry them out. They're quite happy to do that. So I, I think that the, you're, you're left with two things. You either have a preemptive, active uh, intervention to deal with these, uh, these people, 
or you're left in a response mode. And if you're dealing in a response mode, that means you're cleaning up all the bodies first. And I, I'd rather be working in a preemptive uh, mode. That's, that's the only way you're going to deal with this. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. Uh, and, of course, check out his Facebook page as well. Ross, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Uh, you, you know, it's amazing this this uh, affects uh, people on on so many different levels. We, we uh, talked about not only the, the 22 who were killed, uh, but also the, the dozens or so injured. Uh, but even think of the people who are in that concert, in that hall, uh, the thousands of kids who will always remember that event and remember that uh, that day some their very first show for them so uh then you move farther outside the perimeter then it's the city itself the city of manchester uh all of the uk how how does this change the way people view uh this city uh this country and 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 how does it continue to function after tragic events like this. Uh, let's bring in Chris Fullerton, Associate Professor and Chair of Department of Geography and Tourism Studies. Uh, oh, we've lost him. <laughs> I just went to find him and he disappeared. Uh, Luke's uh, trying to figure that out. So, uh, as I was mentioning, you know, we hear the horrific stories of, of how many uh, perished. Uh, one girl as young as eight years old, my goodness. Um and 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 the blog and commentary that I did today, the reaction um, from parents and grandparents. Well, gee, do we not let our kids go to concerts? Do we? Uh, are they not protected in 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 an event like this? Uh, and is that the is that the proper reaction to have? Uh, we have Chris Fullerton with us now, associate professor, chair, Department of Geography and Tourism Studies, and with us now. Hello, Chris. How are you today? Hi, I'm not doing too badly, thanks. Thank you very much for taking the time. We greatly do appreciate it. How, how does this change the way the rest of the world views a city? Are people still, uh, especially with Europe and such, uh, you know, such a vast tourism industry, uh, d- does this keep people away from cities? Um, not necessarily. It, it, it really depends on a number of factors in terms of how long of an impact a, a terrorist incident uh, will have on a particular place. Um, there, uh, given the, the number of incidents that have been happening and the fact that there's a growing number and a growing frequency, um, there's actually been a lot of research looking into this sort of thing. And, and what they found is that uh, a number of factors will determine how long people might stay away from a particular place after an attack. Uh, for example, um, the, the greater the number of incidents affecting a particular place, of course, the greater the impact it's going to have. Uh, but it also matters on things like the, the political stability of that country, um, whether the attack happened in a place that is, is particularly frequented by tourists as opposed to sort of the, the, the citizens of that place, um, and even how well the government responds to the incident in terms of the, the, the investigation and, and the sort of uh, security in the aftermath. So things like that can have a big impact. So a place like Paris which ha- and, and, and France more generally, which has seen just a, an unfortunate number of incidents that keeps growing, um, is really feeling a much more negative impact than places where perhaps it was more of a one-off event and uh, where there hasn't been any sort of repeat occurrence. Uh, have people just accepted that in these areas this is the new norm? This I it think, happens. I think so. And I mean, there's even been differences in terms of different sort of demographic groups and how they respond. Um, you know, people just have this insatiable urge to travel. So I don't think on a global scale uh, the attacks are going to have a major impact. What what they're finding is that people, you know, they they still want to take that vacation and and go to sort of the iconic destinations as well as places that are perhaps less well known. But we're seeing, for example, that uh, that families with children are tending to take the security of a place much more seriously into consideration before deciding where to go uh, versus, you know, people like young young adults who are traveling, you know, with their peers or, or on their own. Uh, they tend to be less concerned about these sorts of things. Uh, what about, you, you talked about whether these are areas where tourists would go or whether they are areas that are frequented by locals. Uh, talk about this venue and this event in the sense that 
it, this was something that affected younger people. Uh, this was something teenagers, preteens, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. How does that change the spin? Um, I, I think that th- this is an interesting change of strategy on the part of, of the attackers, um, and, and, and the attacker in this case, uh, because of the particular group that, that they focused on this time around. Um, however, I mean, given that it was a concert venue in, in a relatively less well-known tourist destination, Manchester only gets about a million visitors a year, um, I don't think it would have a big impact on the that community tourism-wise, but it may also start to have at least a short-term impact on, you know, parents' willingness to let their kids go to concerts, uh, you know, as far as even young adults' sort of confidence about going to, to places like that on their own now. Uh, just, I mean, the randomness of it, that it was in a, you know, a city that you would never really think of as a major target. Um, it sort of is bringing to light the fact that nowhere is really safe. You have to wonder um, how long it is before something like, and, and you know, I, I, I don't even want to say this, but yeah. like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Disney or something of that nature mm-hmm. where there is a lot of younger people around, families, that sort of thing. It seems we're heading in that direction, doesn't it? It does. I mean, just the, the sort of the variety of, of venues in which these attacks have been taking place. I mean, everything from the Boston Marathon through to, uh, you know, major tourist destinations, the Westminster Bridge in London. Mm. Um, unfortunately, yeah, it is the reality that that uh, no place is really immune. But we're, we're you know, we're, we still want to travel, but we I think we're putting a lot of faith into the, the security services available in each particular place and hoping that, uh, you know, there are there are. There's, there's a good degree of vigilance. I, gra- I guess it's a great sign when it still hasn't stopped us from wanting to see these places. That's right. I think people, you know, they, 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 they just have that genuine love to travel and see the world. And, and you know, and, and, and what we often see in the aftermath of the attacks is, are these sort of, you know, um, uh, groups of, of people sort of saying, you know, we will not be deterred from, yeah. from you know, engaging in our behavior, our, our tourism behavior, or whatever it might be. And I think that's just uh, a good sign, too. Chad Fullerton has been with us, Associate Professor and Chair, Department of Geography and Tourism Studies. Sorry, Chris. Okay. Uh, Brock <laughs> University. Chris, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's expected that terrorism will be the focus at the NATO conference in Brussels, which uh, kicks off tomorrow. Also, Canada is expected to uh, have attention brought to uh, spending only 1% of its GDP on defense, which is half of what NATO uh, has stated as a target for us. To talk more about all of this, Alan Sens is with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, specializing in international relations and international studies at University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Hello, Alan. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Scott. Thank you for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. What is the objective of these meetings? Well, this is a bit of a mini-summit, and it has a number of objectives. I mean, NATO has been really affected over the last few years by a whole set of tensions. Uh, What's the role of the organization in terrorism? Uh, The burden-sharing debate. Uh, How can everyone try to get up to the 2% GDP spending limit? question of Russia, which is a a huge shadow looming over the alliance at this time. Then there's Turkey and the events in there, a NATO country that's going through this uh, uh, volatile period in its history. They have concerns about cyber attacks, hacking, um, Russian hybrid warfare, and then over it all, um, a presidency who's, uh, you know, in the past during the campaign has made remarks that calls into question the U.S. commitment to European security. So, you know, for an alliance that's always had a very volatile history, this is a really volatile moment. Uh, So getting a good rap or bad rap now? Thanks Uh, Thanks to Donald Trump. Well... You know, he's been uncharacteristically disciplined over the last 72 hours. Hmm. Um, I suspect that the rhetoric of the campaign has been left behind somewhat. I think his national security team, which is composed of fairly experienced officials now, uh, has uh, briefed him as much as is possible. So I think going in, there's a better sense that he's less likely to do something uh, that will undermine the alliance or the notion of U.S 
the U.S. commitment to European security at this time. Uh, the concern, I think, and I think that what everyone would like to get out of this conference is no disasters. I mean, I know it sounds like a low bar, but I, I think for this meeting, everyone would be quite content if nothing blows up in terms of rhetoric, a, a diplomatic uh, kerfuffle, a diplomatic disagreement that will expose the fissures in the alliance. I think that the impression of unity is the number one priority right now. Uh, that was my next question. Is the world united? Uh, it, it seems that we're in a world of extremes now, uh, where there's more tension on organizations like NATO to keep it all together. There's no question. And, and a lot of it is coming from domestic politics, where societies are increasingly divided on contentious issues like immigration, for example, which is a big issue in Europe right now. The whole question of the future of the European Union is also hanging over this summit. Uh, uh, the One of the NATO countries, of course, is the United Kingdom. Um, and then there's the question of the future of global trade, the future of political relations uh, amongst the great powers. So there's a lot going on. And, of course, the resurgence of Russia and its um, persistent actions in places like the Middle East and against NATO countries and countries close to NATO uh, has been a source of concern as well. So there's no question that at this point, the need for agreement, the need for unity, the need for a sense of common purpose and a sense of common direction and policy has never been greater. Can the war on terror be used as a vehicle to unite us? Is it the one common denominator? I, I don't think so beyond a broad rhetorical level, because there are very divergent interests in how to deal with terrorism. There are divergent interests on what the primary threat might be. I think the summit is a really good indication of, of what we're going to get. Uh, I think what we're going to get out of this is an agreement that NATO will participate in the U.S.-led coalition against ISIS. And it will participate, however, not with military action, but rather by contributing to the training of anti-ISIS forces and towards intelligence gathering and cooperation. Now, the reason why this is, I think, going to happen is because most NATO countries that are interested in training and intelligence are already doing that. They're already doing it. Um, and as a result, I think what we're going to see is the NATO banner will now get attached to those efforts. So it'll be an important symbolic expression of unity. But the reality is the countries on the ground are going to be the ones that are going to continue what they're doing. And the countries that aren't involved are going to stay on the sidelines just as they have been. Uh, what, when it comes to spending, and this was one of Donald Trump's, uh, I, guess, I guess, issues, uh, other countries uh, pulling their share. How do you think Canada is going to be received on that level? And, and what does Prime Minister uh, Trudeau have to do to address this? Yeah, well, we're going to get caught up uh, in the same sort of shotgun blasts coming out of Washington on this issue that everyone else is. Um, I think that the Trudeau government has got a primary task ahead of them going into the summit. They have to come out of there reinforcing to NATO and especially to Washington that Canada has been a leading contributor of forces, equipment, and most importantly of all, troops on the ground in NATO operations. I mean, we were in the fight against ISIS on the ground and in the air. We were in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we've been engaged in Libya. We send advisors to NATO countries. Now, this is a country that has made significant contributions uh, to European security, far more than many countries that spend more than we do. So I think the Trudeau government's got to go in there. They've got to try to change the narrative. The narrative is you're not a good ally if you're not spending 2%. They need to change that narrative to you're a good ally if you contribute to common NATO operations. So I think that's the task facing the Trudeau government. Is Canada paying its share or just trying to convince the world that we are? Well, I think what we're trying to say is we're not paying our share, but we're doing more with, the, with, with what we do pay. Um, so I, I'm not sure that they're going to convince Washington about this. I think the other thing Canada's got to do is we've got to go to Washington and remind this administration, of, as we have reminded every other administration, that, look, we're also a contributor to the security of North America. We contribute with, uh, with you, Washington, 
on the security of North America on a wide variety of issues, and we have to watch our Arctic flank. And we're doing that with you, and that's an expenditure that we also make. So I think that that's got to be the narrative, but it's very true, and the figures speak for themselves. We're about 1, 1.1, 1.2% of GDP spending on defense, depending how you add it up. And if that's the metric that uh, that Washington in particular is going to use to judge whether an ally is good or not, we've got an uphill climb. Uh, What about other countries? Considering this is a world issue, I'm sure everyone agrees that we have to fight the war on terror. Why, Why isn't everyone paying up? Well, I think there's a lot of differences of opinion on on two levels. First, strategy. Uh, What is the best approach to try to combat terrorism? Uh, uh, You know, two fundamental philosophies. We need to address root causes, which implies a significant effort around the world at addressing grievance, political, economic, ideological, religious. So that's one level. Then the other level is tactics. How do you defend yourself? Uh, what, what type of intelligence cooperation is the best uh, instrument to be using? What's the role of the military? What's the role of the internal security apparatus? What's the role of civil liberties in all of these equations? And different countries have different approaches. And so I think there's a lot of tension uh, around it, first of all, and then a lot of difference about how you reach a common position on these kinds of issues. I mean, look, at, look at the migration issue in, Russia, in, in the Europe. Excuse me. This is a classic example. Um, countries have this philosophical approach, but practically they're hugely divided on how to deal with migration uh, of people from all sorts of, of countries in the world, not just the Middle East. So on that issue alone, um, there's tremendous uh, divergence, and I think we can expect the same on terrorism. What, will, uh, what role will Syria play in all of this? How will that be an issue in these discussions? Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a big question. In fact, my, my, I suspect that it'll be shelved, that in fact they're not really going to talk about Syria that much. And I think the reason for it is because of the situation surrounding Turkey and the shadow of Russia. And I think that's just too big a bite right now. Turkey is so deeply engaged uh, in Syria and so deeply problematic for the alliance in terms of its domestic political affairs. You've got the Russians kind of doing their own thing in Syria, and you've got the Americans and their coalition doing its own thing, and everyone's backing their own players. And so you have this very awkward geopolitical situation in Syria, and I think that's something that NATO at the summit is going to try to keep the lid on, not let those differences override areas of more potential cooperation, particularly on the terrorism piece. Uh, You're talking about immigration flow, terrorism, that sort of thing. I mean, until we get uh, Syria solved, is that not the root of this problem or certainly what's fueling a fire here? It certainly is right now. Um, There's a number of drivers, of course, that fuel migration around the world. There's pull and push factors. People leave because they're forced to, or people leave because they want to. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Syria, of course, has been a humanitarian disaster. There is simply no other way of describing it. It's been a migration disaster. Uh, It has now compromised an entire generation of Syrian children, traumatized families, torn people apart. Uh, And Syria is going to be extremely difficult to put back together again. And I think one of the problems, and the reason why Syria has been a problem for so long, is no one has an endgame. And and no one can agree on what that endgame should even be, let alone actually having a pathway to get there. So I think... That continues to be the primary challenge in Syria, and as a result, I don't know that we're going to see much of of an alleviation of the humanitarian factors that are driving the migration crisis until everyone who can plausibly leave has already left, and I don't even know that we're at that point. So with events such as what happened in Manchester on on the minds of people that are at this uh, mini-summit, as you called it, uh, what sort of discussions are being had? Are, are there solutions or just further acknowledgement of what we already know? I think there's going to be further acknowledgement of what we already know. Uh, the patterns are, are there. Uh, despite the, the particularly heinous nature of this particular incident, um, there is nevertheless an established pattern of this kind of uh, terrorism inside the European space and beyond. 
So I, I think this eerie familiarity has now descended on, on what needs to be done and, and what are the limits of, of what can be done. I think if, if there's anything new to come out of this, it's going to be that NATO now will be attaching its banner to the anti-ISIS uh, coalition. What does yeah. that mean for ISIS? You know, frankly, I don't think it means a whole lot. I mean, NATO is part of that you know, great swath of the world that um, ISIS has been rhetorically opposed to since its inception. Um, the practical matter is very few, if any, new countries are going to add new resources to the fight, which has been ongoing for the last several years. But the, the symbolic measure is significant, and now that the, the coalition will be able to boast NATO as a ally. And that at least um, is something politically that Washington will be able to walk away with and that NATO will be able to say it has a unified front on. And in these days, that's considered a triumph. Yeah, good point. Um, Can we win the war on terror? Will we still be talking about this 10 years from now? We're still going to be talking about it 10 years from now. We may not call it the war on terror. It may be called something else by then. Uh, But terrorism is a violent affliction uh, that has affected societies for thousands of years. And and I think that we do ourselves no favors by setting the bar at the conquest of terrorism. I think what we do is we set ourselves favors by saying, how do we mitigate? How do we adapt? How do we isolate uh, and how do we uh, address the root causes of it? And then over time, it may be generational, we will start to see um, improvements and fewer people taking up these types of causes. But as long as we see volatility, inequality, grievance, uh, ideology, uh, religious extremism of all its shapes and forms, we're going to continue to see violence being used as an instrument by some people against others. Is this a war you fight militarily? Is this a war you fight with intelligence? Though the military, uh, well, there's a double word there to the use of the intelligence, the double meaning. Uh, you know, it, it, you can't win a war on terrorism using the military as an instrument. The military can be a supporting instrument. Anyone in uniform will tell you that. Uh, anyone in defense establishments will tell you that. They can help but they are not the primary mechanism. The primary mechanism has to be law. The primary mechanism has to be economic and political policy. The primary mechanism has to be intelligence gathering, reaching out to communities at risk, reaching out to vulnerable individuals, um, and of course, having cooperation because terrorism is a transboundary phenomenon and it has to be fought in a transboundary way. So as, as, as long as we can do those things, and the military is a supplement to those efforts when needed, I think we'll be on the right track. But I always get worried when people start talking about using the military as the primary hammer against terrorism. That is not its role, and it is not ideally suited to that function. Uh, It shows you how much war has changed over the last uh, few decades. It's not about how much military might you have. Well... Yes and no. I mean, I think that it's absolutely the case that we've seen the evolution of conflict in some, a number of directions. Uh, terrorism, traditionally, uh, the weapon of the weak. Um, it's, it's a form of conflict judo. You use the strength of your opponent against you. Uh, when you don't have a lot of military capacity, you fight in ways that makes it difficult for strong militaries to, to fight against you. Um, on the other hand, um, there's also cyber warfare that we're seeing emerge, the sort of hybrid war, as it's been uh, labeled, where you're fighting in a cyber realm that is neither full-out warfare nor um, um, entirely peaceful relations. So I think that has also changed. But when we look at what's going on in Syria, I mean, Syria is a civil war. Um, they are using tanks and and, and uh, uh, small arms and light weapons, and so on. And, and the wars in Africa are, are in many ways characterized the same. We've seen the conflict in, in um, Colombia uh, with the FARC. Um, and we see ongoing um, conflicts like the Gulf War, like the Iraq War, where much larger, more conventional military establishments are still used as an instrument of policy by government. So I think we're seeing less of the traditional kind of wars but more of these uh, lower-intensity conflicts 
um, that are much more difficult to resolve because they derive primarily from social pressures and social energies rather than political disagreements and territorial disputes. Uh, obviously, this attack in Manchester, uh, the uh, bomber uh, born and raised there, a domestic terrorist, as opposed to coming in from another country, although certainly trained in other areas, uh, it, it appears to be at this point. Does, is, is this, does this matter to the discussion at all? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the recognition of the multivariate forms in which individuals uh, can be radicalized, in which the backgrounds of those individuals matter, the backgrounds of their communities matter. Well, one of the most difficult aspects of analyzing terrorism and trying to come up to, uh, with solutions is that terrorism as a phenomenon is an extraordinarily complex blend of the individual, the social, and the political, and sometimes, of course, the religious. And in this complex soup, you've got to try to detach pieces where you can say, okay, this individual was vulnerable because of these factors that were unique to him or to her. And then you've got to say, okay, what was the social context in which that individual was brought up? How were they influenced? What were the external factors that influenced that decision-making? Um, how did those factors impact on groups of people acting as terrorists? And then what were their political grievances? What was the economic grievance? Where did that come from? What's the history of it? So the unpacking of terrorism and the analysis of terrorism is fundamental to coming up with effective solutions. There's no one-fits-all mechanism. And so I think we've got to be very careful that when we're talking about counterterrorism or anti-terrorism, that we respect how broadly based terrorism is as a phenomenon. Alan Sens has been with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, specializing in international relations and international studies at University of British Columbia. Alan, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, many times, and I, I think millennials get a bad rap. I really do. Uh, especially when you think that... Um, most of the people that are uh, slagging millennials are those that parented them. <laughs> so, and at the end of the day, as the parent of two kids, you know, they, uh, they don't come out of the shoot pre-programmed. Uh, they come out of the shoot a blank screen, and it's up to you to instill values and the sorts of things that will make them strong individuals and contributing members to society. So... I, I think it's a little unfair for an older generation to slag the generation that they raised. Perhaps it's not just the millennials. Perhaps it's the parents who were parenting them while on autopilot. Maybe that has something to do with it. Anyway, uh, it seems that when you're looking for an easy target that you will attack a millennial. And uh, no wonder... Uh, Sometimes they whine a lot. Sometimes they grew up uh, in very comfortable households that are now becoming more and more harder to afford. But, you know, between um, rising tuition costs and student loans that drag on, uh, precarious employment, uh, inability to get a job in, in the area that they were trained... I mean, these are all problems that we hear are facing millennials on a ongoing basis, that they just don't have the opportunity that their parents had. Which is interesting when there's a study from Stats Canada that alludes to that those age 30 to 40-something, maybe that's a tail, you know, that's the north end of millennials, I guess. You're talking about 40 are actually earning more than their parents. So are millennials as bad off as we're led to believe? Let's bring in Michael Veal, professor with the Department of Economics, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Just fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Michael. Are millennials as bad off as we think? I know. I must be living in some sort of ivory tower here at the university. <laughs> but I, I actually was surprised that people thought that they did. They were worse off. I think it's fairly obvious that they're better off. 
I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Uh, how come you feel that way? And, and obviously, why are you surprised that, that, that society <laughs> views it the opposite? Well, I have the privilege, of course, of, of meeting many young people. And, of course, some of them do come back, and I see as they make their careers. Um, first, I don't know that the propensity to wine has gone up. I think there's always people <laughs> in any generation who, who, who wine. Uh, I think many young people today are... are right on the right path and are, are understanding their, their role of what they're trying to achieve and are not whining about it at all. But the other thing about it is, uh, simply put, the standard of living continues to go up and people who are born later get to share in that higher standard of living. Uh, a really simple one, uh, much simpler than the work that Statistics Canada has talked about, is we know, for example, that life expectancy has gone up. Mm. So our kids will get to live longer than we do, and we get to live longer than our parents do. Now, that's, of course, is on average, and that's one of the problems, right? The problem is, of course, this doesn't apply for everyone. There are some people who are doing really poorly, and that'll happen in every generation. There's some people who are really unlucky. That happens every generation. But the average consistently gets better, and it continues to do so. So we've often heard that, uh, you know, as time goes by, we have more than our parents, we have more opportunity than our parents, and they had more than their parents, and so on and so forth. We've heard, we've heard chatter in the last decade or so that this will be the first generation that doesn't obtain the same success, whether that's financial, longevity, what have you. Do you think that's a myth, or, or do you think that they will be better off? Well, I think the most important thing to realize is that that's a forecast, right? That's based on what somebody thinks is going to happen in the future. There's hmm. not evidence of it having happened so far. And so, for example, you know, to go to sort of more trivial things, uh, cell phones. Previous generation didn't have cell phones. Hmm. This generation does. This generation uh, can watch a movie anytime they want using Netflix. Previous generation couldn't do that. Um, to be a little more serious and going back to the life length thing, there are lots of diseases that can be cured and treated now that couldn't be treated 30 and 40 years ago. Some diseases have even been completely eradicated. So these the people in this part of the world, most people have been fortunate enough to take advantage of that general increase, even though, of course, there are some people who have been unlucky and have not achieved that, that benefit. Are we measuring the wrong things? Is, can we compare apples to oranges decade to decade? That's a really good question. And, and the short answer is no, you can't. That it's very difficult to make these sorts of international, uh, intergenerational comparisons because life changes so much. So we might talk about somebody many years ago where swimming in Hamilton Harbor would have been a routine thing to do. Now that's not something this generation mostly can do. Uh, it's very difficult to understand how to put those pieces of, of different types of life experience together and how to compare differences that, that have occurred because of the great changes over time. But one of the simple things that economists sometimes do is they look at the percentage of the budget of families that's spent on food and on groceries. And one of the things is that that's consistently gone down over the years. So people have more of the resources to spend on at least that essential. Uh, you know, on, on other things besides that essential. So in other words, we can't, similar to when people compare sports figures of another era, well, this person isn't as good as Wayne Gretzky's era or whatever. You can't compare players from a different era uh, to those which are playing now. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. I think it's just very hard to do those comparisons. I had a professor once uh, who said, talked about his standard of living as a professor in modern day, and he said, well, in many ways, I'm far better off than the professors who taught me because I have access to computers and I have access to all this modern technology and television and uh, all these modern conveniences, which my predecessors didn't have. Uh, but then he said, but, you know, some of those professors had, had servants and kept stables. And, of mm. course, nobody today, you know, almost only the very rich can afford those things. Will we look the same? Will we say the same thing when it comes to buying a house? I mean, kids have access to this, that, and the other, but then they complain they can't afford a house. Yeah, well, that's the housing is, of course, the tough one, because in particular, just right now, we're living in a housing boom, and it will put housing beyond the reach of a lot of the new generation. Um, and economists have difficulty dealing with that, uh, because you can still, of course, rent, you can have accommodation, you can have a place to live, but is there something special about having access to your own house and being able to own your own house? And I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, 
the people who are going to reap the benefit of this housing boom, of course, are the previous generation who own the houses, mm-hmm. and they, they'll have the gain. Will they pass those gains on to their children? That's a possibility. Uh, how come it's different in the United States than Canada? How come these stats uh, don't align the same with Canada as the United States? Um, well, first, I'm not sure we have studies that are exactly the same in the two countries. There's, there's technical difficulties in doing this work. You are doing stuff that's very hard in comparing people with their parents. Uh, but it does appear as if the United States is a less uh, mobile society, and in particular what seems to happen in the United States is that towards the upper end of the income distribution, um, prosperity is perpetuated, so uh, rich people tend to have rich kids. Mm. Uh, and at the lower end, people who are uh, of lesser means, it seems to be their children, are more likely to end up in that same state. In Canada, the evidence seems to suggest that it's much more mobile, and in particular, kids who are born to parents of lower socioeconomic status appear to have a better chance of going up the ladder. Uh, getting back to housing, uh, you, you mentioned before, uh, you know, certain professors didn't have the technology that they have today, but had other amenities, servants, you know, what have you. Uh, will we look at housing like that, or will it just take a different form? Like, in other words, yeah, you'll still have housing, but people won't emphasize or put as much emphasis on owning their home as they do now. So I have two reactions to that. First, of course, the housing that we're talking about is very specialized housing. We're talking about housing in the greater Toronto area. We're talking about housing in Vancouver and a few other places in Canada where there's really been a boom. It's not a generalized boom, particularly if you take into account that one of the reasons housing prices are so high is that interest rates are so low. Hmm. So if you think about the carrying cost of a house as opposed to the absolute asset value, the carrying cost hasn't gone up nearly as much for most people in Canada as those, those figures would suggest, and particularly in, in Toronto. So I think that's one thing. And the other thing about it is that um, I don't see that this boom is sustainable. I'm not saying that there's going to be a crash or anything, but incomes will at least catch up. And what we know is, is there aren't going to be as many um, people in the future or as fast a growth in population as there has been. And that lower population growth will eventually, I think, uh, mean that the housing crisis will solve itself. Now, we're talking very long term. And I know that most people who think about these things are thinking about, you know, can they afford a house now? And so it's, it's very difficult. But I don't think that it's going to be that 50 years from now, will people will be looking back and saying, oh, yeah, then everybody could own a house and now no one can afford one. Because there will be, roughly speaking, the same amount of growth in people as there will be in growth in housing. Plus, you have to look at, uh, you know, there, there was reports out just a couple of weeks ago, the majority of the population now falls in the category of seniors as the baby boomer uh, segment of the population moves through the demographic. What happens as they do leave the workforce and don't come back? What happens as they sell their houses? Uh, where does that leave the generation coming in? Would there, should there not be lots of jobs, lots of opportunity as soon as this cycles through? I think there will be. And if we just go back to the housing market, you make a great point there. One of the reasons that the housing market is tight now is that uh, older people are able to live in their houses longer. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing for society. Unfortunately, of course, it means that it's a little harder for people to get their first house. But overall, in the end, we'll be, we'll be pleased that everybody will get longer lives in which they spend more of their lives in their own house. Uh, we often hear when talking about millennials, precarious work. Um, you know, they may be able to get a job, but they'll have a couple um, and not necessarily full-time status. How is that going to change? Well, as I think the other point that you're making is that as the labor market tightens, right. uh, may, maybe with the demography, maybe that'll go away some. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's different ways to skin a cat, and maybe that's the way people will put their careers together. Uh, people may have to, to be more flexible uh, in terms of being able to jump from job to job and not get into one job and just hold it. Uh, I, I think that's probably a negative for most people. Most people would like the security of a full-time job, but there can be compensating advantages. And I don't think that will be the end result that people will, will look back at their careers and say, you know, I, I had a terrible life because I had to change jobs five times. 
Uh, how is the economy changing? Just like we can't, we use the analogy of hockey players playing in different eras. Can we compare economies to different eras the same way? Uh, the discussion is ongoing about raising minimum wage. Um, I've often brought up points, minimum wage, I, I always, in my day, those were starter jobs. They weren't designed to to live off of. Now people are saying because there's more precarious employment, more people uh, living on minimum wage, we need to increase it. Do you see that trend continuing? I do see the, the trend continuing in terms of that will be a political demand. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to think about in terms of policies what are the alternative policies to minimum wage increases that achieve some of the same gains? And I know right now we're talking about millennials, but actually the people that I think we should be more concerned about are people, not quite the older population, but the, the population, say, 50 and over, uh, who have not been able to achieve economic success, have had some bad luck, um, and they're in positions now that are increasingly precarious. And I don't think that we have achieved a, a, enough protection in society for people who maybe work for the same employer, maybe not a great wage for 25 years, then they lose their job and they have such great difficulty getting back into the labor market or, or getting any way to earn their incomes. You have more concern about them than you do millennials coming into the market. I do. I think the, I think the millennials will make their way. Uh, and it's always been hard to get the start. But then as you look forward, people you know, get their foot in their door someplace, and then they start to work forward. And I certainly reject any idea that the millennials are somehow an inferior uh, type of human being. I think they're, in fact, uh, the best group of human beings we've produced in Canada so far, and they're, they're smart, and they're, they're going to succeed. How did they get that rap? Um, I, I don't know. I think that part of it is, is that we're so... Uh, uh, communication has become so... Uh, I'm not sure if the word is democratic, but, but everybody's participating. Everybody's communicating. There's so much. There's tweeting, and there's web pages, and there's all this sort of stuff. And then I think there is this human tendency, I think, to, to focus on some of the, the worst stories and, and some of the things that suggest that people are whining, and not enough uh, to put on the fact that there's a lot of positive things happening. And I think the other thing that has happened is, for whatever reason, uh, some children are staying a little longer with their parents than used to happen. Hmm. Um, and... I don't know if those are always situations where there's conflict. In other words, I think sometimes it's because that's a mutually acceptable arrangement. But in some cases, I think it might have something to do with, uh, with kids not uh, getting the start that they expected and not being prepared to uh, make some of the adjustments that our parents more or less forced us to make. Uh, as you mentioned, you're in a pretty unique position because you remember what it was like when you were there going through as a student uh, and then uh, now get to teach the next generation, guide the next generation coming through. What's the difference between when you were there and the kids now? Um, back then, you, you hear much, a, a lot about freeform, uh, outside-the-box thinking. Has that become the establishment now? What's the vibe like? Hard to know. I think you, you meet people who have all, are all over the place. You get the people who are, are outside the box and are prepared to be entrepreneurs, who are prepared to do very different things. Um, you are also people who are a little scared of the world. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's changed so much. I think there were always people in all those, all those groups. There were people who, who knew that their, their life was to do something really different, and they took the chances. And there's other people who don't see, at least in terms of the economic or the employment world, that's not where they're going to take their chances. They're much more interested in getting a steady job if they can possibly do it and maybe focus on other things. I think it's always been the same. So you don't look at a crop of students and think, oh, man, you got a lot to learn. Do you look at them and, and are you inspired by them? I'm always inspired by them. I think that uh, they do have a lot to learn at the same time. But when I was their age, I had even more to learn. Hmm. And uh, I was very fortunate. And I think some of these people will be very fortunate, too. Uh, it's always true, of course, that there are people who are, who are less fortunate. And that's one of the challenges our society always faces. Michael Veal has been with us, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.